I think that paradigm of the customers looking out for their interest and when they can help themselves, they engage with a company ought to shift and will shift to one where the company is doing the right thing by the customers and they can be proactive and predictive about when to interact with a, with a customer. Welcome to the 5-Year Frontier podcast, a preview of the future through the eyes of the innovators shaping our world. Through short, insight-packed interviews, I seek to bring you a glimpse of what a key industry could look like five years out. I'm your host, Daniel Darling, a venture capitalist at Focal, where I spend my days with founders at the very start of their journey to transform an industry. The best have a distinct vision of what's to come, a guiding North Star they're building towards. And that's what I'm here to share with you. Today's episode is about the future of the $600 billion customer service industry. In it, we cover topics such as AI's role in multiplying human output in the workplace, the evolution of predictive and hyper-personalized service, as well as running a billion-dollar startup in the AI boom. And guiding us here is Gustavo Sapoznik, founder and CEO of ASAP a New York-based technology company he started in 2014 to use software and AI to dramatically improve the customer service experience. ASAP calls JetBlue, Dish, Sprint amongst its many customers, and I'm really excited to have Gustavo on the show today. He's built up one of the most sophisticated technical organizations and pools of talent in the AI industry. ASAP was last valued at $1.6 billion and has raised hundreds of millions of VC capital from the likes of Emergence, Fidelity, March, and industry giants such as John Chambers and John Doerr. Gustavo, awesome to have you on. Thank you for having me. Talking customer service. Most people want to spend as little time as possible dealing with customer service, but instead you chose to build a company dedicated to that sector. What was the personal motivation to move in it? Was it something around a really bad phone call to a cable provider, perhaps? Well, it's funny. You started the question by stating the obvious, that we generally want to spend as little time as possible dealing with interacting with an enterprise or a company that serves us. And uh, so I'm afraid it's not that I, by some clever imagination, arrived at the problem, but I feel like the problem found me. And it was precisely a call that I could not help but try and get out, yet I found myself unable to get out for nearly three hours. That made me realize, well, I'm pretty pissed off about how broken it is to to interact with a large company. And if I'm that unhappy, someone on their side has to be equally unhappy because they have to pay someone to be on the phone with me for for nearly three hours. So I, I at the time, with all that anger going on, um, I did a simple Google search. And, and I, I must have searched something along the lines of how much does the world spend on these call centers that people like me at that point in time strongly dislike interacting with. And I remember at the time, the first thing I clicked on was this uh, market study or market report that IBM had published in 2014. And they estimated the global spend to be about $600 billion, which at the time, I don't know, represented probably 3x the size of online advertising, which, as we all know, is a pretty big market where companies like Google and Facebook manage to make all their money from. So if this thing was 3x the size, it really sparked my curiosity, and we started first validating that number. And in fact, it is a massive, massive amount of money that gets spent in this problem. 
In fact, large enterprises would generally spend more money in their contact centers, especially B2C enterprises, would spend more money in their contact centers than they would spend on databases and cybersecurity and things like that combined. It's just a, a gigantic area of spend and one where, unfortunately, the productivity of that spend uh, or, or the productivity as a result of that spend has not increased as you would expect over the last 10 to 20 years. So it's been pretty stagnant. And when you saw it in 2014, what was the level of technical adoption or sophistication within these organizations? Well, uh, it, it's, uh, one thing is to make a, a judgment about the sophistication of the organizations. But before that, I think we ought to make an observation about the sophistication of the vendor community that historically has served the space. And I'll preface my statement by saying that some of these uh, incumbents or legacy companies in the space have, have actually built fabulous businesses. They're, they've built uh, large, successful, and in many cases, profitable companies. Uh, and and, and, and that's, that's a positive thing for them. That said, uh, from a technology perspective, uh, it is quite fair to say this is not a space that has attracted uh, massive amounts of innovation. And, and, and let's recall that if you're in the software business, innovation is not a physical thing that emerges. It's the output of people. And the better the people, the better your chances are at building pretty awesome things. And when we look at for the last 10 years or even longer, where have the best techni technical people uh, generally gravitated to is either large technology companies like Google or Amazon or Facebook or very cool startups that are doing ambitious things. When you look at the incumbents in the call center space, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find those organizations hiring the best technical talent that then allows you to build uh, the best products out there. There's one more nuance point that is important to mention. Uh, and I think it's, 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 it's an observation that I, I believe expands to all enterprise technology. So there was, for most of world history, there was no such thing as enterprise software, right? Businesses were run on pen and paper, or whatever else they were doing, uh, stones back in the day. Uh, but at some point, we invented this thing called software and it allowed us to do amazing things that we weren't able to do in the past. But I would argue that from that era until now, essentially, by and large, most of what has uh, evolved has been incremental capabilities. And in that context, it's relatively unfair for me to look back 10 years at some legacy incumbents and say, well, you're not that innovative. Reality is, could they have built better capabilities? Sure. But it wasn't like there was a, a new opportunity to build a new category of software altogether. And I think now we live in this era of machine learning capabilities, uh, that if you can productize in clever ways, you can build products that do uh, brand new things altogether. And, and uh, that's what we're excited to be working on. Yeah. And the industry is certainly picking up a, a lot of steam. And when people think about you know, call center agents and the advent of applying machine learning to that industry. People think about job replacement, doing more with less of them. Um, and you've been always a strong proponent about human 
augmentation um, rather than their full automation and replacement. Is that still the case even with all of these advancements that are happening in AI around us? Our ethos is all about building technology that makes people more productive. In fact, we believe if there's such a thing as a big machine learning opportunity, it's precisely that to find this big, broken, real-world problems that are dominated by massive amounts of people doing relatively repetitive workflows and then building technology that makes those people more productive. On the on the specific question of, of, of uh, job eliminations or job eliminations at scale as a result of these new technologies, well, the job elimination in the contact center space already exists without any technology because the average attrition rate uh, is about 100%. So there's wow. these numbers of millions of people that work in this industry with an average tenure or an average attrition of, of 100%, uh, which means they're constantly being recycled. So the job losses already exist. I would argue that if you build technology to make those jobs uh, more interesting and ultimately more sustainable, uh, you're going to probably see an impact in that quite disastrous attrition rate that exists in the space. And, it, and it's that high because the satisfaction of the job, of the job is, is, is pretty low. And, and why is it low? Well, because if you're an agent, you pick up the phone, someone starts screaming at you about a problem that you didn't cause, and you're there to try and help that individual. And the technology that's been put in front of you to try and help that individual is pretty antiquated and broken and, and effectively something you got to fight through to be able to help this person that's unhappy. It's, it's a tough job. So you've got you know, dissatisfaction on both sides, the, per, the agent who's taking the call and the person who's, who's making the call and, um, and the innovation. More. And then there's a company that has to pay a very mm -hmm. large sum of money for the privilege of having their customers and employees to satisfy with the problem. So every, it, everything's broken about this problem. So what does it look like if we continue along this innovation curve, which sounds like it's just getting started uh, in five years' time? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple essentially vectors of change that are going to allow us to transform this. And, and I think for context setting, it's probably important to say that uh, the trade-off historically in this space has been one between how much money I'm going to spend on this problem and what's the corresponding quality going to be. So, for example, I, I shall not name names of the really, really bad companies, but there are some very large companies, for example, that are very uh, uh, focused on trying to minimize costs associated with call centers to whatever the lowest possible amount is. Whenever you do that, you have to do that at the expense of customer satisfaction. So it meant that those type of companies usually were extremely disliked organizations. Now, on the other hand, uh, we all know, and, and generally is a very loved company, Zappos is one that uh, has amazing, delightful customer experiences, but the cost associated with that is quite high because it meant that these Agents were extremely well trained and they were trained to help you with whatever it is you wanted or needed, even if it wasn't related to, to the uh, issue at hand of whatever shoe issue you might have. So operators generally had to balance. Do, do we want to be one of those hated companies that save a lot of money, but with really bad experiences or do we want to spend a lot of money 
uh, and have delightful experiences. And that was essentially the balancing act. I think we now live in a world where if you leverage machine learning in clever ways to build products the right way, uh, you're able to do both at the same time. That which allows you to save a lot of money happens to coincide with that which allows you to delight your customers. And I think that is the primary shift that we're going to see in essentially the, the reality of the space. How that manifests? Well, in a couple of ways. So, for example, if you make agents more productive, their throughput, the ability to resolve issues per hour, per day, whatever unit of time you're using to measure, can go up, which means they have a higher throughput uh, and they're doing more resolutions per whatever unit of time you're looking. Uh, they're more productive, which saves a lot of time for the company. Now, that more productive agent is also delivering a more efficient and expeditious experience to the customer, which allows them to feel like they're not being dragged on to this endless or unproductive conversation. So that's just one vector in terms of making agents specifically more productive. Also, there's the ability of personalizing this experience. Today, everyone has been talking forever about this notion of a segment of one and, and and, and that degree of hyper-personalization where when you interact with a company, they know who you are and, and what you need and what you might need that you don't even know uh, you need. I do think that will materialize. I think we have all of the ingredients required to enable these large enterprises to treat customers as a segment of one. And I think not only does that increase the light when you interact with a company that has your best interests and hearts and is acting on that on that promise, but also one that I think will allow these large enterprises to generate all sorts of new revenue opportunities by uh, approaching their customers predictively at the right time with uh, uh, new products and services and offerings. That's a really fascinating evolution because if you think about customer service, it's, it's really reactive at the moment. And kind of what you're highlighting here is it could also have an outbound function or a predictive function from there what what does that look like if you wanted to flesh that out a little bit further well i mean think about it right now so let's 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 say uh, your your phone company or your internet company uh and let's say you have an issue your phone's not working or your internet at home is spotty or not working correctly uh at, whenever that issue is happening reality is the company has all the data to before you realize you're having that issue, know that you're having that issue. Um, and that data is by and large ignored by most companies. So usually then you, you figure out, okay, I have this problem. I really don't want to call them because I know I'm going to be on the phone for 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes and it's going to be pretty miserable. Or three hours uh, in your case. Or three hours in that one <laughs> terrible case that led me to start this company. Uh, but uh, uh, at, that, at that point, you're going to try to help yourself. Maybe you're going to your, your, your account on their website and See if there's some troubleshooting things. Maybe you unplug some things and replug them or turn on and off and, and see if that happens. And let's say you keep trying to help yourself out, which, by the way, is further signal to the company that you might be having a problem. Um, and then ultimately you give up, you can't solve it, you pick up the phone. I think it's not far-fetched to imagine that when you're realizing you're starting to have a problem, or when, or even before you realize you're, com uh, you're having a problem, a company is looking out for your best interest. So I think in the future, it'd be delightful if on your preferred channel of interaction, you get a notification that says, hey, we think you might be having a problem with this or that. Would you mind if we help you out? Or would you like us to 
attempt to help you or, or whatever that might be. So I think that paradigm of the customers looking out for their interest and when they can help themselves, they engage with a company ought to shift and will shift to one where the company is doing the right thing by the customers because, again, they care about this. The customer is the single most valuable thing they have. Um, and, and they can be proactive and predictive about when to interact with a, with a customer. And we're in this really interesting time. Like You started in 2014 um, ASAP and you were an early adopter of large language models before they were the cool kids on the block with uh, OpenAI's GPT products. And I'm just wondering, how has that acceleration of some of the underlying technology capabilities in AI impacted your own trajectory? And how do you view these kind of new innovations being brought out um, in terms of their impact to the customer service experience overall? Yeah. So when we started ASAP and we came up with a product vision for the type of product we wanted to build, as soon as we got to medium and long-term objectives, we recognize existing technology does not allow you to make that happen. You need to make some advances in things like natural language processing, theoretical machine learning. Um, and that's why we started building this research organization early on. Uh, it was so that we could build the products we wanted to build. Uh, and, and that was very exciting because you're, you're, you're literally doing cutting edge work that then becomes a product that millions of people can use. Uh, the innovations of the last one, two, three years with larger language models, um, it's extremely exciting. I think it's, it's going to lead to, if you think about things like ChatGPT as a horizontal AI model, that, that precisely what makes it so cool is the fact that it's so broad. You can ask it to generate uh, some code for whatever task it might be working. You can also ask it to generate a poem in the style of your favorite poet, and it can do that extraordinarily well. So it's precisely the breadth of that that I think is going to allow us to build all sorts of new products. When it comes to enterprise domain-specific problems, the same neural network architecture behind things like ChatGPT, these transformer-based models, train on just the data of that problem for a specific purpose, uh, it's generally going to allow you to have much smaller models, meaning they're more cost-effective by a couple orders of magnitude. They're faster by a couple orders of, ma of magnitude. And they're also better at that one task. Obviously, a vertical model cannot write poetry or generate code. It can only do what it was trained for. Uh, but whatever it was trained for, it will likely outperform a horizontal model uh, on accuracy, speed, and cost. And we see it as both of these things are great. Some products are going to be built on this horizontal capability. Some other products are going to be built on vertical capabilities. Some products are going to use both vertical and horizontal models. And we take the approach that all of them are great. And for the products that we want to build, we will always use whatever the best models are, whether we build them, someone else build them. Because uh, what our customer buy our customers buy our, our products, not non-models. Absolutely, the value that you deliver. And so that doesn't all have to be then LLM-based models. You could be using a combination of some of those models with your own that's been developed by your um, research organization internally. Correct. And, and in fact, so there's some tasks and there's issues with uh, privacy stuff or... or uh, copyright issues associated with larger models. 
where enterprises have different sensitivities for how they want to treat their data or the data that, that's used in front of their employees or agents. Uh, so I think, generally speaking, uh, using ensemble of different models are, are, are going to allow you to build products that best fit whatever the need that that product's trying to solve. Switching gears from technology to people, Gustavo, you're in the enviable position of having two industry legends as investors and ASAP board members, as John Chambers, the famed Cisco CEO, and billionaire venture capitalist John Doerr. What lessons from them, and I'm sure there's a lot of them, but what are those lessons that stick with you as a CEO? One valuable lesson I've learned from having the privilege of working with pretty remarkable people on our board of directors is that they know very well the difference and responsibility between being a director or board member of a company versus being an executive managing the company. I think the, the way John Chambers has, has put it uh, a few times, it's kind of like being a grandparent. You get to play with a baby and do all the fun things, but at the end of the day, you hand it to a parent and say, <laughs> you got to figure this out. Uh, and, 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 and we've had many, many such conversations where, like a good grandparent, they're there to, to hear you and, and listen to you and give you advice and perspectives and agree with you and disagree with you and all of that. But ultimately, I think a good board member realizes it's your job to figure out what it is you're going to do. And ultimately, we're, we're going to be supportive. Uh, so I think that that has been a, uh, an enormous privilege. I think specifically, and, and this actually applies both to, to John Doerr and John Chambers. I think there's, you know, there's, there's people who look at a glass, who look at it as half empty, and there's others that would look at it as half full. I think those two individuals look at the glass as massively overflowing, right? <laughs> so there's this sheer amount of uh, exciting enthusiasm and, 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 and kind of passion for what's possible in the future and, and, and the role technology plays in that future, obviously, uh, that, that has always inspired us to dream, be, uh, dream bigger. I remember many times going to to talk to one of them about what our plan is going to be, and and the question being that sounds great, that's aggressive. Why is it not bigger? What what would you need to do to go make uh, something even more impressive happen? And and, and that's that, that's a very good forcing function to have from people like that. Sounds incredibly supportive and energizing. How do you distill that down to someone starting a startup from day one? Is that an energy around thinking around a bigger vision um, of what to go after as a market, a more bolder strategy? You get to spend a lot of time thinking about that because you're investing in a lot of companies. I spent all of my time on one company, so I, I can share about my journey, and, 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 and I don't know how applicable whatever experiences I've had are to others or not, uh, but I found that there's, uh, there's this quote by Churchill that I'm going to miss, which is something like, if you're walking around and you stop at every barking dog, you're never going to get to your destination. I think a, a, a safe, a very safe assumption for any entrepreneur is Whatever mission you set out to do, there's going to be tons of barking dogs and naysayers and people tell you you're nuts, you're crazy, you're stupid, all of the above. And if you stop and address each one of them, uh, you're definitely not going to make it to your destination. I think the, 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 the nature of an entrepreneur has to be such that uh, 
and they have clarity of what needs to happen and how, and 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 and, and that clarity gives you some uh, sheer willpower to walk through those brick walls that will naturally exist in every in any endeavor, uh, and that you also every time you walk through a brick wall, stop and reflect. Well, what could have been done to avoid this brick wall altogether? Uh, so it's not just being a, a a lover of pain for the sake of it, but one, recognize pain is inevitable, and B, have a learning mindset of how can we minimize it going forward. Well said, and certainly focus and clarity is an incredible superpower for for an entrepreneur. And you know, you've applied that focus to customer service, but clearly the technology innovation that you're bringing could be applied to other industries or or market sectors if you weren't building asap with that focus and you were launching a startup today fresh would there be other industries that would be interesting to you also so when we started asap the idea was let's build machine learning products to solve real world problems and the attributes that a problem needs to have is number one needs to be gigantic from an economic perspective needs to be very broken that needs to have tons of data so that we can do something with that data and and customer experience or contact centers happen to scratch all three uh, attributes very powerfully so that's why we started with that as problem number one so rather than tell you what i would be doing if i start another company which i probably won't i'll tell you what we would do if we were to chase another problem and i think we will at some point so right now we're exclusively focused on this problem number one at some point, we're going to go after problem number two, and then maybe at some point, problem number three. And the attributes of those problems are the same. They need to be gigantic, they need to be very broken, and they need to be full of data. When you really apply a, a, a thorough filter on actually being a gigantic problem, uh, there's a handful that surface to the top that also happen to be very, very broken and very much full of data. Uh, maybe the uh, the most obvious one is is healthcare, uh, and one that is, is bigger than contact centers. It represents a meaningful chunk of national GDP. Um, is one that is very, 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 very broken, uh, and one that that not only has tons of data but has some of the most interesting data, and that that data can be used to better health outcomes and patient outcomes. So I think generally that's one that intellectually I've always been curious about. Absolutely. And and that's, you know, enough to fill another episode in its own right, um, all the problems and opportunities in healthcare. Gustavo, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today and sitting down and having a chat. Really enjoyed hearing about your insights on where the industry is going and how you're building ASAP. And thank you on behalf of all of us for reducing the headache of being on the other side of a customer service call so we don't have to spend three hours dealing with it pleasure and thank you for having me. What a great conversation with Gustavo today. I love how he doesn't look at AI technology in a vacuum, but in how it could be best productized to drive real customer impact. What stood out to me in our conversation was the shift from a call center built to react on the spot with limited information and resources to a proactive arm of an organization that equips agents to surprise and delight their most important assets, their customer. It sounds simple, yet finally the advances in software deployed by startups such as ASAP are making this a reality. For more on ASAP and Gustavo, visit www.asap.com. That's A-S-A-P-P.com. You can also find podcasts there with his chief scientists as well as other great insights. 
If you're launching a startup in this industry, reach out to us. We'd love to hear about it. You can email me on danieldarling at focal.vc. That's F-O-C-A-L dot V-C. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and please subscribe to the podcast to listen to more coming down the pipe. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day.